This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Mr. Kelly has heard this lecture approximately three and a half times, right? Where's, where's Mr. Kelly? Where is it? Yeah, yeah. So I hope I do a good job for him. Um, I was thinking about whether uh, what I was going to talk about was timely or not. Um, how many of you uh, think it might be a good idea if the federal government cut the budget? Some, right? Right? Uh, how many of you think it would be a good idea if the federal government didn't just cut the budget but just held it flat vis-a-vis, -vis, say, population? Right? Keep it like it is, but not. And how many of you wanted to grow more or think it needs to grow more and we have to get used to that idea? Oh, there he is, right? There he is, right? Just well, so not right. So not many of us think it needs to grow a whole lot more, or should, right? We, we saw where the room went, um, but here it is, uh, uh, just like a week or two before the election. Everyone's talking about the election, and if you survey what the candidates are saying um, on the issue of spending, which you just polled on, uh, they answer in a very. Uh, you ask the question: Should the government spend? The candidates will answer in a real broad range. They'll either either say um, yes or yes a lot, right? That's what politicians say. Yes, we should spend, or yes, we should spend a whole lot, right? Right? Like, I don't know if you read. Um, there were some articles re recently criticizing the way we handled the recession. We didn't bail out enough, right? <laughs> so that's not very broad, right? Actually, it's like the running the gamut from A to B. Right? It's not very broad. Um, and it's very hard for real politicians to talk about cutting. You know, um, did Paul Ryan talk about cutting when he ran? Not really, right? Even Paul Ryan, right? And you know he's a budget guy, right? right? So, so it, and then you want to ask yourself, why is it impossible for a politician to talk about cutting after a room like this polls the way it just did? Um, there are a few premises, if you unpack it. One is uh, the government has to spend for an economy to grow. They say that a lot, right? You've heard that a lot. And another is uh, the U.S. can't get someone who doesn't want to spend elected, right? We can't do it. So that's why Paul Ryan wasn't popular, some people say, right? He, people knew that he wanted to cut, so they didn't vote for him, right? So that's another premise. Another, we want to welcome our, our new guest. Wait, ah, here we go. Um, and then um, what else? We, we tend to think that once someone gets elected and they say no, then what's going to happen to them? They're going to get de-elected, right? They're going to lose next time, right? In the next race. Um, and uh, even Ronald Reagan didn't spend less in office. You know that, right? Ronald Reagan, the great small government guy, spent more in office. Um, so my job today is to really just say one thing, that it is possible for an American leader nowhere near as far back as Lincoln or the founding fathers or, or for the framers um, to cut and say no, not even maybe yes, but no to spending, and not to hurt the economy, and to get elected. And that's what I discovered in my research. It was Calvin Coolidge, who was president in the 20s, um, 
you know, who is that? I, I think you're thinking Coolidge. She's talking about Coolidge. And I know at Claremont, where a professor is from, where your director is from, they talk a lot about Coolidge. But most schools don't talk a lot about Coolidge. He's kind of obscure. Maybe you know stories about him. Does anyone know a story about Coolidge? Yeah. Oh, right, right. So, so um, he's sitting next to a fancy lady at a party, and she's, ha-ha, you know, and she says, I made a bet I could get you to say more than two words, and uh, Coolidge said, right. <laughs> um, he said he was kind of a sour face when he smiled. He covered his teeth, right? We know that. Um, Alice Longworth, who was the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, said Coolidge looked as though he'd been weaned on a pickle. It's not very nice. Um, but he's worth knowing about, uh, and the reason is pretty simple. He was president for a term and a half. I'll remind you why uh, in the course of this talk. And when he left office, the federal budget was actually lower than when he came in, even though the population grew all that time, even though the economy grew stronger, more strongly than our economy has grown lately. So how do you do that, right? Who is this guy? And I lied, actually. Um, there's one other thing you need to know about him. He also cut taxes. He cut taxes to a lower rate than Ronald Reagan. So um, some of you in the room will remember. Can you hear me? Yeah. Will remember uh, that the famous, you know what the famous rate that Reagan brought taxes down to, the top rate? Does anyone know? Any grown-ups? He brought it down from way up there, you know, near, you know, it, it was in 91 with Eisenhower. It came down a bit. But from way up there, I believe over 50 down to 28%. And everyone who was involved in that, including some Coolidge fans, were very proud of that 28% that we achieved in 1986. That's when that law was passed. Uh, well, Coolidge cut the taxes to 25%. So in that little snapshot of a contest, not totally fair, but nonetheless, Coolidge does better too. He cut the budget and he lowered the taxes to a lower rate. So well, that's kind of interesting. So if he was a Scrooge with the pickle and all that, he was a Scrooge who begat plenty. Um, you know, this is, if you like smaller government, he's the hero you never knew you had. Um, there were a lot of patents. The 20s were a wonderful decade. There were a lot of patents in the 20s. It wasn't all just Champagne and Gatsby and Boardwalk Empire, right? There was a lot to it. Um, and, but how do you do it? And that's also what I want to talk about it, because how... Coolidge did it, but also how President Harding before him did it, and I think I'm going to show their picture now, yeah, um, did it, is a good story. Um, and it's partly a story of political process technicality, and it's also a story of people and their moods, um, temperament, presidential temperament. That's Harding on the left and Coolidge on the right. And it takes a minute to tell. So I want to thank the Ryan Center. I want to thank Colleen, um, Mr. Miller, and Mr. Kelly, and Villanova, and you for this chance to appear before you and anyone who's going to be watching it when it streams, if it streams now or later. So the story of Coolidge begins in the early 20s, um, after World War I. Uh, the parallels to today are evident after World War I. The country was kind of messed up. It had had a big crisis in that instance. The crisis was the war and not um, the financial crisis that we had, but still it felt like that. And some sectors of the economy are doing really well, and one of them is called energy. Energy, right? Energy, is does that sound familiar? If you have a job, if you, have, if you work in energy, right? But maybe not in some other area. 
Um, other sectors are not doing well. Um, the unemployment is having trouble going away. Or there might be unemployment going down on the books, but people aren't getting good jobs. That sounds like now, too. And you want to think, if you're thinking about presidents and history, what was happening to the other people who, who were going to be president later in this period? Well, um, one of them had a haberdasher shop with a friend. And that, that haberdasher shop went bankrupt after World, right, Truman, after World War I. So and that, that uh, convinced Mr. Truman that maybe the government should intervene in the economy. <laughs> so, and along come two candidates. Um, oh, I'm going to just say what else. I want to mention there was a lot of economic trouble, interest rates. Um, but we had an enormous debt, which you'd never had before. We had a deficit that we couldn't, we were trying to get out of. And there were two groups that wanted more, that wanted spending from government. Um, one of them was farmers. Farmers um, had done, did well at a certain point. Commodity prices go up, then they go down, and farms failed all through the 1920s. The 20s were a depression for farmers. And what did they want from the government? A subsidy, right? And everyone's a farmer, right? Coolidge is from Plymouth Notch, Vermont. It's a farming town. Um, in Coolidge's town, Plymouth Notch, Vermont, it's like this. So the people from the Midwest will laugh, or even from parts of Pennsylvania, because it's like this. The, the humorist Will Rogers said, in, in Vermont, the farms don't lay, they hang, because <laughs> it was so bumpy. And in Coolidge's town, later the Agriculture Department or some other authority went through and studied it and gave a report that not a single acre of Plymouth Notch was arable. So can you imagine being a farmer, right? And that's where he came from. There were a lot of those in the United States, either East or, of course, Midwest, farmers who weren't doing as well as they thought they should in the 20s. And of course, they wanted some help. And all of us had backgrounds in the farm. Coolidge was a lawyer, but his dad, or his granddad, actually, farm, right? So we wanted to help our, our ancestors, our family. And, and, and there were more Americans on the farm at that time a greater share, so that was much, therefore, commensurate greater political pressure. And the second group was the veterans, and that sounds kind of small, too. I mean, how many veterans can there be? But you want to remember, in World War I, there was universal conscription. Not, and number two was one-third of those vets came back somehow disabled, <laughs> and they all had lice, right? And uh, there were no antibiotics. So if you had a wound, it might never go away. It might just be there, right? And you might be in pain the rest of your life. And your wife might not work, because women didn't work so much then. So that was a terrible blow. And the veterans wanted a subsidy of some kind or other. It was called the bonus. And you probably read about that in history. And they had a reasonable case for that. So what's interesting in this story is that nonetheless, two people, these two people, right, run for office. Um, and they happen to be from the Progressive Party which is the Republican Party, not the Conservative Party, which is the Democratic Party. Remember, times are different then. Um, this guy and this guy, Harding, who's a senator from Ohio, very jovial. I think he's like President Clinton, uh, Harding. Very much loved. The Senate will do things for him because he's their brother. Very good at picking his battles. Um, and um, experience because he's been in the Senate. And the other guy is the vice presidential candidate, the quiet governor from Massachusetts, right, who, who um, not very big. His bodyguards called him the little guy. Imagine calling the president the little guy, the little fella, um, Coolidge, right? And um, they actually come in on a platform of no, 
no to the farmers, no to the veterans. Their, their logo, I mean, I'm sure you took AP history, was normalcy. And when you study that and you write it down in your book, you're like, what's that normalcy? Well, you notice, first of all, the first two letters are N-O. <laughs> and, and I always thought, like, studying it, oh, they want everyone to be normal. I didn't really like that. Um, but that's not what they meant. They meant they wanted the environment to be normal, less policy change, so people could know what was going on, could know the rules, and would play the game, start business or, or whatever. And that begins to sound attractive. Normalcy was a Harding word. Harding, um, you know, he liked alliteration too. He would just babble. It was like a flow of words. Coolidge was much more precise with language and, and quieter, and he didn't like that phrase normalcy. He wondered if it might mix Greek and Latin or something. It just didn't sound good to him. So he put what they sought, this campaign, another way. He said, we want less economic uncertainty. And that begins to sound familiar, too. And the second novelty is this pair wins. Um, they come into office, 2021, the jovial guy and the quiet governor, like kind of a bookkeeper, right? And um, then you think about inauguration, so 1921. What, do, what, what, do, what would Mitch Daniels call for if he were inaugurated president? I guarantee you action, right? What would President Obama call for? Action, experiment. What would President Roosevelt call for? Action. What would Gerald Ford call for? Even Gerald Ford liked to do stuff sometimes. Whip inflation now, right? Try to have the government do things in new areas. Um, so I want to read to you Harding's, in, uh, I'm going to pretend I'm Harding, forgive me, um, his, in, uh, his inaugural statement because it's awfully different from what any politician of either party would say today. Okay, I'm going to pretend I'm Harding. He had an Ohio accent, which I can't do, but I'm from Illinois. So, no altered system will work a miracle. Any wild experiment will only add to confusion. Our best assurance lies in efficient administration of our proven system. Where's the change? Where's the drama, right? What? Very different kind of politician coming in to the White House. And Harding um, did say no at first. Um, we want to give him some credit. He passed uh, the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921 because um, all of you are children. I'm a child, too. I mean, my parents are still alive. And from time to time, we go to our parents for money, right? And the parent can't always keep track of what, 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 what kid asks for. One kid comes in and makes a very good case for a car, because the kid has a job, needs to be virtuous, right? Another kid comes in and makes a case for another car, right? Or for summer school, or for, and the parent doesn't really get an overview most of the time. That's the way the chief executive was at that time. It would be one department or one committee would come on behalf of a department to beg, to sue for a gift, and the president would assent, and then another department would come, and the, the president just never got a big full picture of it. He didn't have the right kind of staff, he felt. And the Budget and Accounting Act unified the budget, so the president could survey it carefully all at once. And it did this formally in the institutionalized structure. And it gave the president an advisor to run the math for him, who was his budget bureau director. That's the um, forerunner of the job we, um, you know, the office we now have called the OMB, Office of Management and Budget. Where you have the OMB director. He tells the president what to do. So. Harding did that. He said no to farmers. He cut the taxes. Oh, I forgot to mention about their budget law. Um, it gave the president the power to sequester, to impound money even after it had been budgeted and passed into law. 
The president says, oh, I gave you two pencils, I gave you two battleships, but I see you're only using 1.5 of what I gave you. I'll take my stub back. Like that. Very different culture, right? Um, cut taxes, cut the budget. Harding cut the budget, too. Um, way down to the 50s, they were even higher. Not as high as the 91 of the modern period of Eisenhower, but they were high under Wilson. And Wilson cut some, give him some credit, and Harding cut some more down to the 50s. And he planned like this thing that, have you heard of Reason Magazine or the Reason Foundation? Some of you, it's Libertarian Foundation. Well, he, Harding had this project that sounds like just like something that Reason would write. The government had oil reserves, and he was going to privatize them, and then the people would get the revenue, and the government wouldn't be in the oil business. And you remember I told you energy was doing well, and that sounded very virtuous. And about the veterans, what was Harding doing? He didn't want to give them an entitlement. He understood the danger of that, so he was going to build hospitals for them, a lot of hospitals and very expensive. That was an elaborately wrought compromise with the needy group. All this is going on, and, but then you want to remember what I said about temperament. Harding was a really complicated man. I recently visited the Hardings in their home in Ohio. A lot of them are doctors, some sports doctors. Are, um, Harding's plan said no. What he was supposed to do as Republican president, and his head said no, cut some more, but his heart said yes. He's a very friendly guy. He hated to say no to his friends, right? So then you want to look, knowing that about him, at, at his execution. And he, he got tired of saying no, right? Uh, first of all, the White House is supposed to ha serve only orange juice, right? Because prohibition is on. Only, uh, and you if you're going to have prohibition, you have to model prohibition for the rest of the country, this new law. And, and um, Harding and Mrs. Harding didn't like that. And it even said in the newspaper that people went to the White House for, okay, open quote, food and action, <laughs> close quote. So what's that supposed to mean, right? right? Oh, that's not very good modeling. Um, and uh, well, he got tired of the tax cuts. Maybe 50 or 40 percent was enough. Yeah, that was hard to ask Congress to do that, and he didn't do it. Um, and two of, his, two of his projects were fatal to him, in the, actually almost in the literal sense. One was well, um, that oil reserve privatization, it, it sounded good, but all his friends got involved and friends benefited. And instead of a wonderful privatization reducing the government, it, it merely was a project that betrayed uh, the corruption of the government and that insiders got special deals and it became known as Teapot Dome, right? Um, not successful libertarian experiment. And the other one with the vets was even worse because Mr. Forbes, who was a friend of the Hardings, was supposed to run all these veterans' hospitals, but he took the money instead and put it in his own pocket so the poor veterans didn't have the hospital that they'd been pro promised. And Mr. Forbes ended up in Leavenworth, in the big prison, right? So this is very hard for Harding. And you know that he died in the summer of 1923. And I would say he partly died from, from this, uh, this sorrow. You know, he said, it's not my enemies, I can take care of the, them in a fight. And he swore, so I won't. But he said, it, but it's my friends, my GD friends, who are betraying me. And his friends did betray him. Uh, did betray him. Um, and there are more jokes about Harding, which I'll spare you, because the Harding revisionist, who is James Grant, I know will be here next year, um, to tell, he has a new book coming out ab about Harding and the early part of the 20s. Okay, anyway, he passes from the scene. The president who doesn't like saying no, Harding, he dies. 
and um, in comes Calvin Coolidge and your smart people. It's the summer of 1923 in August, early August. We celebrate it and mark it of a ceremony at the president's birthplace in Plymouth Notch because Coolidge happened to be home when he learned he was going to be president. Um, and he's into office and he has to come down to Washington. And um, if you're really smart, and everyone is, we're counting the months and we're saying, well, how many months to election? Lame duck, right? Lame duck is only a year and some till presidential election. And Mrs. Harding never had a strong opinion, a high opinion of Coolidge. And she had already been plotting to get another vice president because she thought he was such a loser. So, um, you know, the, and they wrote a lot of mean things about Coolidge. Just we were talking about the Internet today and we think how mean it is. The papers were very mean then and they said he was the accident of an accident as a, as a president. Well, my God. But remember what I said about temperament. And here's a distinction where Harding was divided. Coolidge was all one. His plan said cut. His brain said cut, and his temperament said cut. And he knew that every fiber of his being had to be about cutting if he was going to be able to do this difficult cutting you know, for America. Now we're well into peacetime. The country's doing pretty well, 23. They're wondering whether we need to cut some more anymore, right? Or we need money to grow. And um, he's just absolutely determined to cut. You think about what people name their White House pet. I can't remember. Is it Bo, the name of the Obama, the first Obama dog, right? And um, anybody else? There's a, and then um, I know the Bushes had Barney, and and there was socks. Somebody had socks, and you know, right and right. You can go all the way back, and they have names like that. What do you think the Coolidge's named? Um, they got twin lion cubs as a gift from the mayor of Johannesburg. He he named them Budget Bureau and Tax Reduction. <laughs> That's how much he cared about those things. And you're like, really, right? Um, and they, they, I, I, footnote, for those of you who really like econ, I mentioned they were, there's professor, they're twins, right? There's not a big fat lion called tax reduction and some runt called budget bureau. Give them even Steve and it feeds them on steak, right? Because he's making a political point. He was not a modern supply sider in that way. He didn't just do tax cuts. He always kept an eye on the budget because it was just his temperament. He was an accountant by... By, um, by temperament. Uh, he was a lawyer. And when he comes in, he comes in very tough. If you've ever had a university head or a principal to a school who comes in ultra mean, someone was uh, saying, um, you know, sometimes that happens at the military academy. Someone will come in very mean, the new head. Well, well Coolidge came in like that. He didn't come in like a lame duck at all. He said, I want to read to you some Coolidge. Um, I am for economy, by which he meant saving. And after that, I am for more economy. We must have no carelessness in our dealings with public property or the expenditure of public money. Such a condition is characteristic of undeveloped people. Ooh, shame, right? We don't do that anymore. Are we undeveloped? Oh, we better save, right? And they could see that he was disciplined to the point, uh, he didn't say, I'll mosey on. He vowed to continue. And here he's like, more like Lyndon Johnson after President Kennedy died, right? To continue what they had promised to cut more. And he, that he would do it, open quote, to perfection, close quote. That's quite, you know, quite a mandate he gave himself. Taxes, 50% rage, 58%, that was way too high. They, those taxes had to come down. And with the Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, they got into this big tax campaign to cut the taxes. And this is a very curious campaign because it, Coolidge was silent and Mellon was silent. So how can two men who are silent have a tax plan together? Talk it through, right? 
And it was said that Coolidge and Mellon conversed in pauses. <laughs> and we've all had like family members or, or teachers like that, right? Mm -mm. Uh, I used to have an editor who talked that way. That's how you got fired or hired, but mm -mm, right? And um, they worked very hard on their tax plan. And it w you know, if you look at Mellon's biographer, Kennedy, he notes that Mellon served three presidents. Mellon was very mighty. He was like Mr. Brin today, or you know, Bill Gates, or Warren Buffett. That's how he was regarded, although it was more an industry. And um, uh, Mellon had served three presidents, but it was always said three presidents served under Mellon as Treasury Secretary. And the biographer, Kennedy, makes clear that the one president whom Mellon preferred was Coolidge. Um, Mellon had this idea called scientific taxation, which he got from his railroad business. He noticed if you made the tariff, the toll really high, then fewer trains came on your line, right? They might go in another way. So you might reduce the tariff or the toll, and then you get more traffic. And you cut the price, but you make it up on the volume. That's also the Walmart principle. And he saw, well, maybe we could do this with taxes. We cut the rate, we might get more money and not have a deficit. Tax rate and is very, very important you know, to Mellon. He, and uh, he called that scientific taxation. Did I say that? Scient okay. So we wanted to try that. You, you charge what the traffic will bear when it comes to tax rate. Maybe if you lower the rate, you get more revenue years and years out. Um, budget, this was an amazing display, display by Coolidge. He didn't even budget casually. He, he budgeted ruthlessly. Um, uh, very unrelenting right to the end of his presidency. Um, to, uh, we know that Harding, I told you he didn't like to say no, vetoed six times. Coolidge vetoed 50. Just think about that. Um, and meetings with his staff. You know also that you can't, it's easy to say yes when you're unprepared and hard to say no. The only way to say no is to be prepared for the meeting, right? And um, for my book, this bio of Coolidge, I went through the White House calendar and saw that Coolidge would sometimes meet with his budget director 50 times a year, right before he had a cabinet meeting, so he could say no to the cabinet members. Well, um, most presidents don't see their wife 50 times a year. It's very, very hard to get an audience with the president. It was um, quite rigorous of Coolidge to do that. And you see them especially Friday mornings, right there in the book every time, no matter what sorrows he went to, um, went through. Uh, he, Coolidge also did cut the budget um, of future times with those vetoes. And I want to mention that um, you know, every president has a favorite legislative tool. Right? And uh, what do you think his favorite tool was, given I told you how silent he was? The pocket veto. So what's a pocket veto? Does anyone know? Right, right. What happens? You put it in your pocket. It has to come right before the recess. And then in the recess, you, you don't sign it, and it dies. And the Congress has to start over. You put it in your pocket. The, the New York Times at the, at, in that period described it as killing a bill by inaction. Very Coolidge, right? Um, and, uh, but you have to get the Congress to pass the law, the bill, right? Right before the holiday, the recess. So you kind of have to trick them into doing it, right? And then you, uh, but it's a glorious result because you don't have to write a message of why you vetoed it. And 
they can't override your veto. Coolidge wasn't just good at the pocket veto. He was like a regular Isaac Stern, a maestro of the pocket veto, the world's best pocket vetoer, and he practiced that, right? So that's important, too. Um, I, I wanted to mention, I think I did before, about farming. You know, everyone looks to presidents and says, what's their vulnerable area? Le they like fishing, let's get some fishing legislation. They like farming. The Coolidge family had a cheese factory. What's a cheese factory? I told you about their poor farms in that area. It's an exercise in economic desperation. If you don't have a railroad and you don't have refrigeration, you have to keep your protein somehow. So you make cheese, right? The cheese cooperative, it's still there. You'll see it if you come, Plymouth Cheese. Um, they weren't doing that well where he came from. So everyone expected that he wouldn't veto farming. He did. And there's a famous exchange where you know, the farming lobbyist comes to the president, and again, I'll pretend to be Coolidge. Well, what does Coolidge say? And their pauses, they're more important than the words. Well, Coolidge said, farmers never have made much money. Pause. Don't suppose they ever will. Pause. Don't suppose there's much we can do about it. Guy goes away, right? Very different style, right? Um, you know, I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, in the back background, I, I, it's important to, you know, these days we talk about pork figuratively. They, we mean uh, extra stuff thrown in the budget, right? Coolidge took his pork literally. There was an unfortunate housekeeper, and we know this because afterwards she wrote a tell-all, she was so mad, with Cosmopolitan. Um, who liked to shop a lot and buy great food for the White House and the diplomats. And one day, uh, she laid out this whole spread with, uh, with a certain kind of meat, and she wanted to meet his approval. But uh, he took these, uh, these projects literally, and he looked at what she had, Mrs. Jaffray there, and he said it looked like she was serving an awful lot of ham to him. And pretty soon Mrs. Jaffray was gone and he got a much more um, thrifty lady from Massachusetts who he knew to come to the White House and she kept every single item on a little book, you know, of what, how the White House saved and she saved $2,000 one year over the preceding year and Coolidge would write her notes, very good, fine improvement. That is, every aspect of his life was about budgeting. And what do you suppose happened to this Scrooge? Did the other people in Washington like him? No, I mean, a visit with the president is kind of like the MasterCard commercial. You see the president in a room, that's pretty good. You see the president in a small group somewhere, that's even better. You get to eat breakfast with the president all by yourself and maybe one other person. Well, what's that? Priceless, right? Whatever party. So these lawmakers, interestingly enough, would turn down these priceless invitations from President Coolidge and he would wheel out his what his maple syrup right and his little special sausages from New England and his pancakes and all that and they would turn it turn down the invitation if you can believe it and um, the house usher who also didn't like Coolidge Coolidge was not a very good tipper <laughs> compared to the Wilsons and so on Wilson had taken this this usher to Versailles Coolidge didn't take him much of anywhere right he kept a list of the RSVP no's that people came up with to avoid seeing their president. Okay, and I'll read you some of them, just because they, uh, they're so hmm, amusing. So, Senator Pittman regrets sick. Won't take. 
Senator Heflin can't come to the White House, regrets sick. And this one is really lame. Senator Reed of Missouri regrets, comma, sick friend. <laughs> and here's the one I like best, Senator Norris, who, as you know, is a big progressive. He had different kind of views from, from Coolidge and Harding. Senator Norris, unable to locate. <laughs> So the Washington people didn't like him very much. Um, but the Coolidge policy did help the economy. The unemployment stayed low. Actually, there were pretty many, few strikes in the 20s. Wages did go up. But more importantly, the dollar bought more. People got washing machines, cars. First they got the Model T, then they got the Model A. Electricity. This was the first um, electric household. And of course, the radio. Um, but mostly there was a sense of optimism in the 20s reflected in those patents. People had the idea that America was going places and could go places. There was um, one, one journalist who kind of got what Coolidge was doing, that the Scrooge was begetting plenty because of this policy. It was Walter Lippmann who didn't like him. And it's the last quote I'll read you because I like it so much. Walter Lippmann was studying this President Coolidge, and he wrote about the White House and its ability to not do anything and say, no, this White House is extremely sensitive to the first symptom of any desire on the part of Congress or of executive departments to want to do something. The skill with which Mr. Coolidge applies his wet blanket is technically marvelous. There has never been Mr. Coolidge's equal in the art of deflating interest the naive statesman imagines it's desirable to interest the people in government and that indignation at evil is useful, but Mr. Coolidge is more sophisticated. He has discovered the value of diverting attention from the government and with an exquisite subtlety that amounts to genius, he has used dullness and boredom as political device. <laughs> Very interesting, different style, right? There are some pretty happy takeaways. I told you about the economy. I can tell you about the election. Scrooge won an election. 1924, he did have to run. And there were three parties running, right? There were the progressives, the Democrats, and the Republicans. The progressives were a spin-off from the Republicans, like Theodore Roosevelt, right? Like the bull moose. And what happens when there's a third party in America? Who usually wins? Democrats, right? Woodrow Wilson, Bill Clinton, right? Bill, why did Bill Clinton, if you look at the Bill Clinton election, there was Ross Perot. So that's not very good for Republicans, because often the spin-off third party is from the Republicans, more like the Republicans. Well, they had that spin-off, that's third party, and um, the, the spin-off group, the progressives, got 16 to 17% of the popular vote. Nonetheless, Coolidge won with an absolute majority. He didn't win with a mere plurality. That is, he, 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 the Republican, took more than the Democrats and the progressives combined. That's some mandate. So you might watch about President Roosevelt, he had a great mandate. Well, President Hoover had a great mandate, and before him, President Coolidge had a mandate. That is a support for a Scrooge policy. Um, they, when, when Coolidge chose not to run in 1928, and that's an interesting point too, whether, you know, should he run again? Um, he chose not to. The Republican Party is their neurotic animal. And they freaked out. They weren't happy that he was being virtuous and not running. They freaked out. They said, we can't win without you. And they finally, when they realized he was serious, 
they told Mr. Hoover, who was going to be the Republican, you have to run on a continuation of Coolidge policies. And that's what Hoover did, on, did run on. Whether he executed those policies is another lecture. But it, they thought Coolidge was very precious, and they were not pleased when he chose not to run. Um, another takeaway for you is human temperament matters a lot. He couldn't have done Coolidge what he did if he hadn't been a saver, hadn't come from a saving family. His father had dozens of little bank accounts squirreled all over the place, right? Very money under the mattress. Cautious farming community, cautious businessman. His father wrote everything down. You buy shoelaces, he would keep it in a little notebook, right? And Coolidge had inherited that, and being a farmer, he knew how hard cash sometimes could be to come by, right? So very cautious. Um, respect for federalism matters. One reason Coolidge wanted to keep the big government, the Washington government, back, which he called the national government, by the way, just to be clear. The federalism, that was the states, and the national government couldn't be too big, was that he, he really believed in states. He was not unprogressive. He advocated some progressive policies, but he thought the states should apply those policies. Um, just like right now when you hear the debate about Roe v. Wade, you hear some lawyers say, well, the states should decide about abortion, right? I'm not taking a position. I'm just describing Coolidge thought the state should decide a lot of things. Another area Coolidge was defending when he was fending off the government was the area of faith. He really believed in the community, that a community could make a university, whether it was a geographic community like a county or religious community, right? It could make a hospital a community, can make a lot of things that you don't expect it could make. It could have a pension system, right? He didn't think that Washington should do all that. And he saw that the government, when it got to being impinged upon what he called things of the spirit. Um, I mentioned the economy. I uh, particularly commend to you the study of the 1920 downturn. Um, the supply side experiment, not Coolidge's, but Mellon's really worked. When they did cut the taxes, you can go to the statistics of income and study this year over year, they got more money. The rate price, like in Walmart, was lower, but more money came in from all the business activity. So that was one you want to study if you ever want to look at that. The government austerity certainly helped the economy. Um, I'm going to close, and I know I'm going to get asked whether Coolidge caused the Great Depression. And I'll answer as he would and say no. <laughs> but we could talk a little more if you want. And the second is, uh, could, there, could there ever be another president like him nowadays, TV? Everyone says yes. And when I was um, first publishing the Coolidge book, it was when um, Mrs. Thatcher died. And, um, and that helped me to understand about Coolidge. It, in England, they never thought they could have a Margaret Thatcher type person, a mean lady, be their leader, right? until they got in economic trouble, and then they turned around from all those soft guys who wanted compassionate conservatism and cadence of compassion and all that. That's what the English Tory party wanted for many years, and went to the hard lady, right? The iron Mrs. Satcher, because they knew they needed somebody tough. A Coolidge could easily be elected and would be sought in the United States, but probably only after the interest rate goes up. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. 
He said, um, thank you for the question. Did Mr. Coolidge say the business of America is business? He said the chief business of America is business. But in the same paragraph, he said the chief ideal of America is idealism. So he was sort of truncated if you just do the business part. He had a great respect for business, however. But he didn't shut out everything else. It was, on the contrary, to protect everything else, he allowed business to, to flourish in his view. It's a little warm in here. I'm sorry about that. How did you get interested in Stripper? Um, the answer is, uh, do you want the, the human answer or the intellectual answer? Oh, the human. <laughs> the human answer was, I had a boss who was really silent. Uh, he and Coolidge is the pre-incarnation of my boss, I'm sure, who was also from a farming family. Midwest people don't always talk a lot, right? Uh, he was from the Midwest, and uh, so I was used to this type, the one, and um, that uh, it was a type I was familiar with because I'd worked with people like that for a very long time. But the other reason is. Um, I wrote a book about the 1930s called The Forgotten Man that's more famous than my Coolidge book. And The Forgotten Man was about how the government made it all worse, really. That's what it, the first Hoover and then Roosevelt, maybe they made it worse. And that's why the Depression was great and not forgotten, like Harry Truman's Depression, right? Um, and, but I saw that there was something good before it. And that was Coolidge. That was the good part. And so the Coolidge book is about how the government made it a bit better and what they did. It was, it was the prequel um, to The Forgotten Man. And now I'm working on the third book, heaven help me, it's a trilogy, um, called The Silent Majority, which is a post-war book. Uh, and um, in fact, in Coolidge's time, his friend Mr. Barton said that Coolidge speaks for the silent majority. And that... Um, but not much. Not much, right? right? That phrase, the silent majority, we associate with Richard Nixon and all that. But it came from, and who was the silent majority in the 19th century? The dead. The silent majority who are always with us in church, right? Because a lot of people, new people who had died in that period, many more, right? And so it, it's a, a meme, a phrase that has a long history in our, in our country. So I liked it for the, for the third book. Amity, do you think that the um, American character, character of the American people, has changed since the time of Coolidge, which would make it uh, virtually impossible, not impossible perhaps given certain crises, but virtually impossible to elect again a president who said no? We're going right now in Pennsylvania. We have a governor who said no. And the Pennsylvania people aren't reacting very well they to the like fact it. that um, he has refused to raise taxes. I mean, there's a question of the, the gas tax. But other than that, he's kept his promise not to raise taxes. And that's being used against him, and it's being effective. Um, I, I would imagine at the national level somebody would run into something similar. You know, if, if um, liberals want larger government, conservatives don't usually argue anymore, since Reagan, for smaller government. They just want less bread and fewer services. Right. They're like, they're like what we used to say, Alf Landon, who is Roosevelt's opponent. was Roosevelt was for the big New Deal, and Alf Landon was New Deal light, right? 
So I, I think part of this, um, that's a very important question. It's hard to want to say no, but you have to say no coherently. You can't just say, I'm for what the Democrats want, only just a little bit less, because what's the difference between you and the Democrats? And what you have to say is, saying no, if I say no, you and especially your children will have so much more. And that's true, because if we don't reform the entitlements, our children will have less. So, so you ha it's a hard case to make. And I haven't seen the Republican Party particularly making it, um, in part because of that thing with the Lions. The Republican Party doesn't like to talk about budgets or austerity, because that makes them look mean, right? Um, but austerity and budgets pushing are old right <laughs> pushing off. But they aren't. For one thing, there's no evidence that anyone's policy would change Social Security for people who already have it. Um, so, but they aren't. And um, it's up to the younger people to follow through this story. I, I don't think the party, the GOP or the Democratic Party, either party knows what it thinks. And that you know, believe me, they look on the internet to see what your generation thinks, and they f they are more following than you imagine. So if you think about economics seriously, they will listen to you. Let me follow up on that just a little bit, because um, Alexei de Tocqueville said, he predicted that there'd be a growth in the uh, central government and a growth in bureaucracy, and that that would have a certain effect on the character of the American people, a kind of paternalism that when you're treated like children, uh, there becomes a, a, a point in time when you start to act more like children. Right. You ask for the government to do things for you. And it creates certain habits of heart. Right. And that it would be hard to change those after a certain period of time. Have we got, ha has that happened in America? Um, and if so, is there a way to uh, <coughs> change that? Ha has America gone soft? So there are different Americas, right? Baseball America thinks it's not like football America, right? There are two different cultures. They have different ways of acting, right? New Hampshire thinks it's different from Vermont, right? Oh, uh, Indiana certainly thinks it's different from Illinois, maybe Pennsylvania, right? It, Texas thinks it's got its own country, right? And in Texas, it's 4% growth, and we don't take so much from government, and we have no income tax. So you always want to be careful. You know, there's, it's just like with television shows. You say all young people uh, don't believe in initiative, and then there'll be one show that they all watch that's all about initiative and hunting and fishing, right? And survival even, right? So, so I have great faith that that, that um, initiative is still there. And I know that personally because I've taught now for a number of years. Nobody works harder than you guys when you get out of school, most of you. Not all of you, but most of you. And it's very hard. And, the, you know, the internships are, are um, both, um, you know, a lot of them are dead ends. And the first jobs are dead ends. And every, a lot of life when 20 to 25 is like a bad airport. Sounds good, but when you get there, it isn't that good. And you guys negotiate that with great grace and a lot of patience. Um, and uh, so I, I think sometimes the reputation of the youngest workers is, is too low for what they actually offer and try. Oh, absolutely. Well, so, so one thing that happened to Coolidge, remember I talked about antibiotics, right? There were none. So he had a son who went to Mercersburg Academy in Pennsylvania, which you've heard of. Um, and that son grew a lot his sophomore year, maybe his junior year. It was Calvin. He was Calvin. His son was Calvin. Um, and he came back to the White House for summer, and he was tired, and he played tennis. 
and his shoes were probably too small. And he got a blister. And that blister went septic, and Calvin Jr. died in one week. Um, it was the first time he was tall. Like within two or three months of getting his grown-up height, he died. And he was also a very nice boy. Everyone loved him. He was, you know, friendly. And so that was terrible for the president, who had suffered a lot of loss before his mother died when he was a child. His sister died when they were at boarding school. His sister got appendicitis, and the doctors didn't even know what it was. And she died when she was, um, I believe she was 16, maybe 15. So he'd seen a lot of death. Um, and it was a terrible thing for the Coolidge's when Calvin died. There are books, there are authors, one is called uh, Gilbert, who posit that the death of Calvin Jr. made Coolidge depressed and he never did anything again. I don't think that's true at all. It, Coolidge was in pain over the death of Calvin and in his autobiography he says, after that the glory of the presidency went, after the death of Calvin. But he did his job um, and he executed what he said he would and that's all one can do. You want to remember, um, a lot of people in that period had lost a child. It's not like now. So, so um, President Wilson lost his wife. Charles Dawes, the vice president of Coolidge, his son died in a swimming accident in Lake Geneva, I think, Illinois, um, who went to university. Um, the vice president before Coolidge, his son had, uh, no, he had no son. He adopted a son, and the son died. So uh, um, General Pershing lost his family in a fire. So around the Coolidge's were people who had lost young people, which is so rare now. And I think they knew better how to handle death than we do um, because, unfortunately, they experienced it more. The Coolidge's went to church every Sunday. They made Charles Lindbergh go to church with them when he visited them. And he came down in, I think it was a white suit. He was Charles Lindbergh, right, the superhero of the world. And Coolidge sent him back upstairs and made him change into a darker suit. <laughs> So they, Charles Lindbergh was like, like a son to them, but they were pretty uh, regular about their um, religious observance. And as you probably know, the first national Christmas tree was brought under the Coolidge's. They wanted a living tree after the first year to remember Calvin. They had trouble making that stick. It's very hard to transplant a huge tree. And so the living trees kept dying, right? Um, but the, the national Christmas tree became a tradition, and that was one way they thought about Calvin. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh, oh. Go ahead. And then we'll do this. Okay. So presumably you surveyed the current political landscape, you all watched, and knowing that there's an election coming up for president in a couple of years, and given that you write a lot about the president, um, are there any potential contenders for the GOP nomination that have surfaced so far that you think would be able to take up the mantle of the Coolidge Oh, sure. I mean, it really, honestly, has anyone heard of Percocet? right? Of Oxycontin, right? The economy right now is like it just had a blood transfusion or Oxycontin because of the low interest rate. Everything feels kind of okay even when it isn't. It's, we're slightly in a daze, um, but one day the interest rate may go up. When, when Ronald Reagan had that tax rate in the 80s, what do you suppose the interest rate was when you bought a house? It was 14 or 15 percent in that period. You only could buy half the house that you would want to buy, right? Um, that could happen, and then any number of people would rise to the occasion. And I don't have a, I'm not, I don't have a candidate, I don't work for the candidates, but you, um, this, it probably would be a governor who would, you know, and we do, remember I talked about two Americas, a lot of governors cut budgets. 
um, they don't always win again, but they cut budgets. Union states are less friendly to, to t tax and budget cutters, unfortunately. So um, it will so probably be one of the governors, um, and you know their names, or maybe, um, maybe Mr. Ryan will come back, but I'm not endorsing anyone right now. But as I mentioned, temperament matters. They have to be ready for it when the moment comes and um, not be, uh, you know, sort of loose and relaxed because it's a hard task. The gentleman over here in the white shirt. Well, it was he inherited some bad ones, like Doherty had to go, right? He, Coolidge was very particular about carrying on Harding's cabinet because he wanted continuity, but then they began to realize the extent of the corruption. And so Doherty went, and Coolidge tried to get in someone new, and uh, one of Coolidge's appointees, I think Mr. Warren, was not confirmed. Then another one came in. It was okay. Um, the only important person for me in the Coolidge cabinet is Mellon. And if you watch a video of Mellon, Mellon thought he might retire once Harding was gone. And he goes to Coolidge, I think I should retire. You're the new president. You pick your own treasury secretary. And Coolidge said, forget it. <laughs> That's not the way you talk to Andrew Mellon, right? Um, forget it. Uh, and Mellon was a marvelous man. And in the video, and there is video of Coolidge's new cabinet, you can see all the cabinet coming to pose with the new president and mourning and all that. And there's one thing Coolidge does that's absolutely inescapable in the film. You, um, Mellon doesn't have a seat, and he goes, sit right here to Mellon. Sit next to me. You're not going anywhere. I need you. So he really welcomed Mellon and um, leaned on Mellon. And you know, if you look at uh, Carnegie Mellon and all the things Mellon did, he was a wonderful man. He needs a new biography about how great he was every year. He's much maligned. You know, in the New Deal period, he was prosecuted, you know, relentlessly until he died um, by by his political opponents. So, so um, I, I'm for the big revision of Mellon. He's not very patient. Okay. <laughs> 1928, you've heard from Brian. You can't tell what could have happened, but in the fall of 1929 is when the depression occurred. So obviously. Nothing that Hoover did was depression. The question is, had had Coolidge run, would beginning he was the continuity of his policies, would that have had any impact as to whether it occurred or whether or how the reaction would cause further deterioration of the economy? Well, um, that's a very good question. Coolidge, did the, who caused the depression, and what could one do to mitigate it? A counterfactual. So, who caused the depression? Um, I, would, I would quibble with your definition. In 1929, they didn't know it was the Depression. It was, just it, was it was just another stock market crash. How old was Coolidge when he came online to be a grown-up? Uh, 1895, what else was born in the mid-1890s? The Dow Jones Industrial Average. How many times did the Dow crash before 29? A number, more than, I think, five, six, seven. Did it crash a whole lot? 10, 20, 30? Yes, it did. Was any big old depression following that? No. So I, I um, would say Coolidge didn't expect um, the crash of 29, and the, I would all, on my own, I would posit the crash of 29 did not cause the depression. Most, I think most economists um, know, think that too. Now, it, it didn't have to be that bad. It might have been bad, but it did, certainly didn't have to be 11 years of double-digit unemployment, or 10 years, right? Um, so 
there's that. Um, did Coolidge think a crash was coming? You bet. Did he think it was the responsibility of the White House to stop it? No. Remember, there was no SEC then, and I'm not sure Coolidge thought there should be an SEC. He had been the one to regulate Mr. Ponzi. You've heard of Ponzi schemes, right, in Massachusetts. Mr. Ponzi was, got in trouble with the Massachusetts government because there was no big SEC like that to, to get at stock fraud. Um, he thought, uh, very old-fashioned, that the market would crash and people would learn a lesson. Maybe they wouldn't buy a margin so much anymore. You're alluding to some policy. There's some policy uh, errors that made, started to make the crash into a depression, and I'll name one of them. Um, the trouble overseas. So it became a circle. You know, if you look at what Mr. Kindleberger wrote, for example, you see these circles of things getting worse and worse, a deflationary spiral and so on. Some of that was caused by Republican tariff policy, but not all. Some. And he was a Republican. He didn't sign a tariff. It happened before him, Harding signed one, and after him, Hoover signed one. But he probably would have signed a tariff. Um, he was in the tariff party. So I'll give that blame. Um, and uh, what else? I think that's about it. Um, the, what, the, what Hoover did was supposed to be a continuation of Coolidge policy, but it wasn't quite. In addition to the tariff, which we know is called Smoot-Hawley, um, he raised taxes he, more that probably than Coolidge would have, and he really went after business. He said, short sellers, this is your fault. That was very un-Coolidge-like to sign. Coolidge didn't believe in going after groups. Um, uh, and then, um, he, then also, I'm trying to think what else. The, 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 the part that's interesting and that economists are just studying now, and I would particularly commend Lee Ohanian of UCLA and Harold Cole of Penn on this. Is he here? Harold? No. Um, is what was, did the labor price matter? Because in standard econ, well, everything sort of regulates itself, and when wages are high, that could be good. People say, well, then people have money and they'll spend, and they'll get, stimulate the economy and all that. Well, they didn't believe that until 29. If you look in the 20 depression, the wage rate actually went down. Because, of course, as an employer, given a choice, would you rather keep wages up um, when you keep wages up, well, you have to lay someone off or lower wages and keep more employees. Often you'll want to keep the employees and they'll understand about the lower wages, right? And that's what they did in all those other downturns. But when 29, Hoover didn't believe that. Hoover believed that you had to raise wages or keep them high in a downturn because that would stimulate the economy. Very modern, but unlike his predecessors. And what Ohanian and Cole argue, and I would argue, I provided the sort of anecdotal storyline for that, but they do it with data, is that upward pressure on the labor price from policy made unemployment dire in the 30s, just as it did, by, by the way, in the UK in the 20s. So maybe we shouldn't push wages up because then people won't hire people, and then people, you know, it's sort of like the song, nice work if you can get it. People who had work were okay, but other people couldn't get work in part because wages were high. That's, um, Coolidge wouldn't have done that. I, th I think he wouldn't have told the employers you have to keep wages high the way Hoover did. And um, there was a New Dealer named Rex Tugwell who said everything we did was really came out of the Hoover plan and you can make that argument. Hoover was a real progressive. He believed in action like Theodore Roosevelt relative to Coolidge. Um, at this age, um, 
uh, as they finish college and look for a job. I've heard a number of students say that they're very worried about their futures. They're paying college uh, tuition is incredibly high, and they're taking out loans that, that they'll have to pay off. Um, even in an age where a lot of them are having trouble finding a job after they get a degree, whether it's a bachelor's or a master's or whatever. Um, do you have any ideas on what you think the world looks like for them? Um, well, I think you should be, I mean, I, I'm not going to, I sound so the same, but like what I say to my, I have two sons who are kind of getting out of college like that. Um, and two kids still in school. And the, the two sons, I say, 15-year mortgage. <laughs> Fixed, 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 right? That's the number one piece of advice. Fixed, everything fixed, fixed. Better be fixed, change it to fixed. Um, it, we, none of us thinks the way you're forced to fund your school is fair or right. It's a big scandal that both parties made. It should be changed. It's wrong that you have this much debt. One reason parents are laying it on you is we can't afford it ourselves because our prospects are diminished by the recent unpleasantness, the recent downturn ourselves. We have less money than we thought at age 55 or 60 than we would have. We lost 10 years in there, or five years, you know, of turmoil. Um, you, that's not fair to do to you. Um, it, but the main thing is the government debt, and can the government handle that debt in future? And right now, the U.S. is the least bad place, and it benefits from that. When, even when we make a mistake, we make the world nervous and unstable, and it's perverse. The money comes to us because we're the least bad place, even though we're the one that caused the problem in the first place. Um, that could change, and maybe the money would go somewhere else into Bitcoin, who knows, into some newer, more, um, more uh, a currency that's not, uh, that can have a much bigger market, be a deep currency, not thin like the Bitcoin. Um, and you just want to be aware of that, that the interest rate could go up. On the plus side, um, with the internet and so on, you have more access to knowledge than we did. So you have more opportunity to find your way. We didn't, you know, if you lived in Chicago, you didn't know about what happened in New York when we were young, right? You just, you just, you knew very little about what happened. Someone had to tell you on the telephone once a month or maybe you would get a letter. You can find out about whole industries yourself. And I think these have been very, um, uh, have demonstrated that they use the knowledge that's available to them. So you have the capability to be, put it this way, a more, more flexible labor market than we were. We were like, I'm going to get a doctorate in library science, that's it, right? You know, or something like, we didn't know um, that libraries would die off. And if libraries died off, well, what are we going to do? We didn't have any other prospect. You know that things change already, and you're going to be more flexible, and that's going to benefit you tremendously.